I'm the type of person, if you ask me a question and I don't know the answer, I'm going to tell you that I don't know. But I bet you what? I know how to find the answer, and I will find the answer. All right, Dave McCord. Yeah, that is, of course, Irish for a very warm welcome, my friends, to Shamrocks and Shanks. And another episode where we get to learn from some of the best professionals in the golf world. Now, my guest for this episode is Rob Fails. Rob is the player development leader at the mildly impressive Boar's Head Golf Resort in Charlottesville, Virginia. As well as being a Bachelor of Science graduate from Clemson University, Rob has been nominated by Golf Digest as a top 50 teacher in state, as well as numerous other accolades in his career to date. Now, what makes Rob stand out to me as a coach of note and one to follow is not only his constant strive to see differing perspectives and relentless pursuit of that information, but the goal of transferring that learning and knowledge into easy to understand delivery methods for his students. As his title would suggest, his intent is player development and all roads really lead to that one goal. From day one that I met Rob, he's shown a tenacity to really not only look under the hood, but to strip it all down and try to rebuild it so he really understood how it all works. Similar to all aspects of life, the golf coaching landscape is ever changing and developing and the view of the future is one of more understanding. Understanding of learning methods, understanding of communication methods, and definitely understanding of our players. Rob Fails is one of the coaches leading that expedition. Ladies and gentlemen, Mr. Rob Fails. All right, Mr. Robbie Fails. Uh, very, very warm welcome to the podcast, Shamrocks and Shanks. Um, obviously, for a lot of people, they might not know you in terms of a household name as yet. Now, I've known you for a little while. I've been very, very privileged to do so. Um, and I've no doubt with time or with years to come, you will be a household name. So just to give yourself, to, for me to give you a bit of a background, uh, Clemson graduate through the PGM program, bachelor's of science degree from there. Uh, worked at Carmel Country Club for, I think, four years. And now you're player development leader at Boar's Head in Charlottesville in Virginia. Um, so an impressive resume to start off with already. Um, could, you get the, could you give the audience a little bit of background yourself? So shine, the, shine a light on it yourself in terms of your development and leading to where you are now? Yeah, totally. I'll, I'll try to make it brief because I know uh, when I always listen to these podcasts, I'm like, come on, let's just get to the good stuff, right? Yeah. So uh, no, no one knows who I am, so it's okay, like you said. But uh, but yeah, I worked with uh, Jason Sutton. He he gave me a chance to teach full-time pretty much right out of school after interning for him in the golf academy. So it's all with him and Seth Mers. We had just such an awesome four years together, uh, learn from each other and teach in. And I had the opportunity to uh, – to go up and teach with Hunter Brown, which I uh, met, I met him at coach camp as well. Uh, I'm not sure if that was the same coach camp that you and I met. It may have been, Could have been um, yeah. but uh, yeah, Boar's Head Resort, Birdwood Golf, uh, it's just an absolutely phenomenal facility. It's only an hour from home. Uh, so after I got married and starting to think about having kids, which we have one on the way now. Well, congratulations. <laughs> so, that's not thank a, yeah. you. Yeah. Um, just to be an hour away from home in a facility like that, being able to teach with Hunter is just, uh, it's a dream come true, to be honest. Um, but yeah, no, I've been lucky to learn from a lot of the same guys that you have, uh, guys and girls that you have, and uh, just trying to get better every day. Awesome. Yeah, it's a fabulous facility. I think Davis Love was involved in the uh, yes. renovation of that there. Yeah, and it's, it's, a, it's a fabulous academy and a place for learning. So, you know, when we kind of look into that, you know, the player development leader for a lot of people out there wouldn't be familiar with that title in terms of what it encompasses, because we'd 
you know, be very familiar with golf coach or director of instruction. Right. So that player development leader, can you kind of break down and give us a synopsis of what that entails for you at the resort? No, I, I honestly, I do think it's kind of a perfect title for what I do because uh, director of instruction, I think, uh, you know, again, Hunter does a lot of the same. We, he and I are, you know, we work together, but um, I really think of myself as someone who is there who specializes in development of players. Mm-hmm. And I think that's very different than just instruction, right? Instruction is more, you know, being responsible for the content and the quality of what we're teaching. But in terms of developing players, I really like the fact that I get to uh, develop a program like Operation 36. Um, not that I developed it, but I'm implementing it. <laughs> give uh, give uh, the guys about 36 a shout out there. But um, but yeah, we do PGA Junior League. We've got uh, even a women's Op 36 class that we do uh, as well. And then just uh, starting to think about, okay, how can we better develop the people that trust us in more of like a long-term type of situation, not just not just trying to be transactional with our clients, but trying to be a little bit more transformational. And that's, that's what I try to do. That's awesome. And then do you like in that role, do you see a shift in the paradigm of, of the way golf coaching used to be kind of implemented in terms of, as you said, you know, not saying that instruction is a bad word at all, but no, no, definitely not. You know, like, and there is that, there is that requirement for a certain level of instruction, but do you think that the overall like idea or the overall philosophy of golf coaching is changing to be more dependent or sorry, more, you know, encompassing of player development rather than I'm going to instruct right. you to move the golf club? Yeah. And I think it's, it's something that we're going to get to hopefully later in the podcast, sure. but I just think, I think so much of traditional golf instruction has just been an exchange of information. Mm-hmm. And I think over time, it's almost like the golf community has started to self-organize away from that because we start to realize that, hey, just consciously understanding what we're supposed to do isn't enough. We have to understand how to put these things into place uh, and not only know how to do it, but then how to retain and transfer it over time, which is really what the people are, are asking for. They're not, I, I don't know about you, but my clients aren't just coming to get a better understanding of the golf swing. They want to be able to hit the ball better and they want to be able to do it better when it counts. Yeah, uh, and that's really what we're trying to do. Yeah, hundred percent. Like you're trying to you get get players to lower their scores and enjoy the game more. So, <laughs> right. Yeah, and it's it's a it's a funny dichotomy when you see um, other pros will say, "Oh, well, post your scorecards, post your scorecards." I'm like, okay, yeah, but you know, not all players want their scorecards posted <laughs> straight away. Um, so that that's the way. Like, obviously, I don't know if people caught it at the start, but we've known each other for I think about four years ago, and we met. Um, yeah. just randomly at a, at a coach camp thing, which was one of my first kind of uh, developmental forays, to be honest with you. I met yourself, Mark Grace and Bill, you're there, very fortunate. Um, and I've kind of followed you from afar and we've talked a little bit in those couple of years. And I definitely see you as more of a holistic approach in kind of in keeping our surmising what we talked about in the last couple of minutes. Um, and there definitely seems to be a focus on the intent and the understanding and more of the kinetics and, and kind of playing mm-hmm. with those kinetics a little bit. Um, would that actually describe your kind of coaching guidelines or philosophy? Would that be fair enough? Or? Yeah, yeah, definitely. I mean, you're, you're teeing it up for me there, so I appreciate it. Um, but yeah, I, I, I like to think, and again, this first half, if I've listened to the podcast a few times, you really want to make it more towards the golfer, right? Yeah, for so sure. Yeah. Just, just talking about really how can we help our golfers become better problem solvers, right? 
so the first thing I always try to do, and I actually really uh, encourage golfers to use kind of the sequence in order to better I not only identify what they're trying to do, uh, but then eventually how to solve their problem. So like I just said, the first thing that I always do is figure out simply why are we here, right? And I'll, sometimes I'll ask people just point blank, why are we here today, right? Because you'd be amazed at the different answers that you get. I mean, I've got some players who do not care about what they shoot when they go on the golf course. They just want to see the ball moving right to left. As long as they're hitting a the draw, they're happy. Okay. I got some players who never step foot out on the golf course. They just go to the range and they want to better enjoy their time. And then I got other players who they do not care if it's a 30 yard pull cut or a you know big high push draw, however gets it in the hole the most efficiently, they're gonna be happy with. So I think understanding why the person is there in front of you is number one. So when I have players who come out to the golf course, I've, I think the first thing you need to understand is, okay, why am I here today? Um, I think that you just really can't go wrong. And really when I'm talking about that, and I think it's important to understand, generally speaking, either the people you're going to see are going to be aspiring or they're accepting. And so I got that from uh, Dr. Mark Bull, but I think it's a really powerful thing to understand is that if you're truly aspiring to a greater level of performance, that's going to be a very different golf lesson than someone who is quote unquote accepting. And by that, I mean, they really just want to enjoy their time out on the golf course. They, they accept the fact that they're not going to reach these pinnacles of performance uh, that, you know, someone like a young developing junior might aspire to, um, but they're not having fun on the golf course and they want to have fun. And so I really view those two people as two very different golf lessons. Um, once we understand why we're here, I think it's important next to understand what exactly are we trying to do? So when we think about traditional coaching, that's really the exchange of information, right? Just having a good solid concept or declarative understanding of how exactly am I trying to move the golf club? How exactly is that gonna impact what the, ball, what the golf ball is doing? Uh, and can I kind of start from that transcendental phase of like, you can't really argue with it, it's irrefutable. Um, I, I think that's, that's really the second step. And I think if, Quite honestly, Steve, like if golfer, if coaches were to only teach ball flight laws and just getting golfers to understand what the club is doing to make the ball do what it, they're experiencing, I think you'd make, you know, a lot, you'd help a lot more players than you'd hurt, right? Yeah, um, I think definitely when we look at that, I, I know, and to quote Mark again, I think he was like, it's more about what you want to learn rather than what I want to teach you yes. um, in those sessions. And I definitely seen a couple of your sessions where there was one in particular where you were explaining to the student about, and you actually had the ball in your hand and you're bringing the golf club to the golf ball. And yes. everybody listening goes, oh yeah, well, I know that. I'm like, well. Mm. You know? <laughs> and that's, what I, that's, that's really why I start with what exactly are we trying to do? And that's, again, just wanting to make sure that the listeners always have things to take away from these Sort of conversations is that's exactly what I'll do. I'll have them hold the club head. I've got my uh, beer opener here in my right hand, but you can you can uh, you can imagine this as a club. And I've got the ball in my lead hand, uh, and then all I'm going to do is say, "Hey, how are you exactly trying to move the golf club into the ball?" And you see some crazy things. I mean, I had somebody just a couple of days ago who had the whole club traveling in the same direction right up until impact 
And then they stuck the leading edge kind of underneath the ball and then tried to like flip it up in the air. <laughs> well, no wonder, right? No wonder like your, uh, you know, your, uh, your in-plane couple is, is, uh, is out of whack because uh, of, of just simply your concept or your idea of how the club should work into the ball, right? Yeah. Um, and so just the things that I try to get across is that we want the club head and the handle separated we want them going pretty much in opposite directions um and i i got this one from mark grace which you have to have him on the podcast um but i'll hold the club out and have them imagine like it's an open box so the very top uh there's no there's no lid on the box it's just a side and then the base and then another side and then i'll have the club head up above the handle and then i'll say okay i'm gonna pull the grip to make it form the bottom of the box uh, right. So I'm going to pull the grip down across and I want you to tell me where you think the club head will go when I pull the grip in that direction. And almost without fail, right. They will always say the club head's going to go in the same direction that you're pulling. It. Yeah. Right. And then as you keep working them around the box, every time, as you keep, as they keep getting better, they start to understand that, no, it's, it's the opposite direction. I think that's what so many of our golfers are doing they're applying force into the handle in the same direction they want the club head to go. And they don't realize that it's a swing, right? We're not trying to shove the club into the ball, right? We're trying to create momentum. Um, oh yeah, definitely really getting on a tangent here, but yeah, that's, that's step two. Uh, that is step two uh, is what are you trying to do? Yeah. And I really like what Mark Bolt says is that there's no movement that we can't make if asked the right question. Yeah. It's really getting them to understand what exactly is the problem that we're trying to solve. So we have this uh, really clear and defined goal before we move on to the next stage, which then would be more in terms of how are we trying to do it? So it goes, why, what, how, Yeah. Okay. right? And I just think that's a, that's a really good sequence of events to, to follow, not only if you're coaching, but if you're a player as well, if you're coming out to practice, why am I here? What am I trying to do? What am I trying to do? And how am I trying to do it? Um, yeah, you really can't go wrong. I don't think if you uh, if you think of it in that way. I'd love and, and taking from that, I'd love to circle back to what you kind of just said there, where we've gone from, you know, at a certain point not knowing how forces and torques were applied to a handle, to now knowing exactly what those forces and torques produce, to now the challenge of getting that somewhat complicated information or not understanding from members getting that across to the club golfer in a very simplistic mm -hmm. manner um, but something right. we can talk about maybe in the coaching session later so I think what we're taking from that is for a lot of club golfers is you know it's like when you go to your doctor and they go like have you been sick in the last one you go no I've been grand and then he goes well did you have a cold and you're like oh actually <clears throat> so you know when you go get a lesson uh, give as much information uh, as possible yeah. and, and say what you really want out of it I think um, the coach on his on their side excuse me should be asking you those questions anyway but definitely volunteer as much information. And it, it's your it's your session, it's your time, whether it be half yeah. an hour, an hour, or an hour and a half or on the golf course, you're there to get the most out of it for you. So very important for all club golfers to be as upfront as possible, give as much information. And, you know, like uh, as Mark would say, uh, memory and anatomy are those two influences. So definitely mm. what you think should happen and what possibly should, two very, yeah. very different things. Um, and if we were staying with the club golfer, and it's something else that I know you've been very prominent in with, with game-like training, um, mm -hmm. I, I, from my perspective, one of the challenges for the club golfer after they go and get a coaching session from whoever the coach might be, 
would be that kind of like self-reliance to a certain aspect and that kind of freelance interpretation of how do I practice this? Yeah. Um, even the word practice now is just <laughs> for the training, very, right? Yeah. Are you trying to, what are you trying to look right? Yeah. You can't even say anything anymore. Um, no. From your kind of work with game like training and, and your own self-discovery, what can the go- club golfer do to improve their training, their practice, or that time that they're trying to improve away outside of the, the coaching session? Absolutely. So again, it starts with that first question, why are we here, right? And I think when it comes to training, I think there are two main uh, schools of thought, two main ideas that you can use uh, in order to effectively uh, make use of your time. Uh, one would be, are we training to learn? And then the other option would be, are we trained to perform? And understanding that it's always a spectrum. It's never exactly one or the other. But I think if you're more in, if you're coming to train to learn, then really what you're trying to do is you're training awareness. And I think that's, that's the number one thing I see is that when golfers come and they believe that they're training to learn, they are coming at it with the idea or the belief that if I make my performance in this time as high as possible, then that is going to transfer over to when I point the transfer. So uh, if you think about how you would shape your environment to make the performance as good as you possibly can, you would take away all of the factors that could potentially interrupt, right, your ability to perform. So perfect lie every time, right? It never changes. The lie always stays flat. You're using the same club, shot after shot after shot, same target, shot after shot. You have no consequences. You have no sort of context. Uh, And really, you're just put yourself in this very stale, sterile environment. Uh, a, a uh, A good quote I like to use for players is, imagine there was an alien looking down on the golf facility that alien would probably think there's two completely separate games going on one on the golf course and then one on the range they don't look anything alike yeah. uh, and i think the reason for that is number one convenience the range is very convenient you can go out and you can hit 40 50 balls in the time it takes you to probably play just a couple holes uh, but then also it's just it's easier and i think people it's called junk food training for a reason because it makes you feel good but it's not good for you <laughs> and i think uh I think that's, that's the big, the big thing I I try to get across to people is that if you are training to learn, then you always want to be kind of uh, definitely not at the, at the outer edges of your ability, um, but you definitely don't want to be making it completely sterile and unrepresentative as it is. Uh, So when it comes to training to learn, you have really three options in order to improve the the quality of your practice. You have uh, spacing, which would be simply time in between uh, repetitions. You have variability, and then you have uh, challenge, which I kind of call it context or consequence. Uh, however, whatever C word you want to use for that, uh, I think is good. But just a, a general guideline: if if you have a five ball set, uh, the research has shown that retain to retain engagement, you want to be between thirty and seventy percent success rate. So uh just as a as a as a ballpark if you use five ball sets if you're between two and three so if you're getting two or three right or acceptable in a five ball set then you're probably in the right zone if you're less than two then 
I would say that that's probably going to be a little too difficult, but from a coaching standpoint, if your student is there to aspire, not accept, then I do think that can be a, a kind of a good way to test and say, okay, is this person really here because they're aspiring to get better? Like what's the grit that they can show me in this situation? Mm-hmm. Uh, or are they just going to bow out and say, this is too difficult. And in that case, maybe they're, they're really there to accept and have fun. Yeah. Um, and then if you're above three, if you're four or five, uh, I could argue that that's actually uh, going to reduce engagement because the challenge point is actually a little bit too easy. So I always like to keep it in that kind of 30 to 70% success rate. And so if you're, if you get above 70, then you would add either time in between. So literally take 30 seconds between balls. If you're only taking, you know, one, right. Would be a way to make the challenge point more difficult. Um, Another way would be to vary the task. So uh, let's say that in between shots, you would have to do something else, right? You'd have to hit a chip or a putt. The purpose is not to work on your chipping or your putting. It's actually to get your brain to uh, basically forget what it just did and have to basically remember. Uh, and it's that, it's that act of trying to remember that actually makes the motor program engage uh, and actually encode a little bit better. Uh, so you also have the variability. You could switch clubs. You can switch targets. I each actually have players sometimes change locations on the range. So they'll go from one bay to the next. Um, and then if I still can't get them below that 70% success rate, uh, then I throw them on the golf course and I start to make it more real. So, uh, that would be more training to learn. If you're training to perform, it is completely the opposite. You want it to make, you want it to be as stressful, as chaotic, as wild as possible. So that when you go to the actual performance environment, you get to take a deep breath. You can be say, oh man, this is easy, right? A good uh, analogy that I like to use is imagine you had two tigers. One, grow, one tiger grew up in the jungle and the other tiger grew up in the zoo. Well, imagine what would happen if you took that zoo tiger and all of a sudden you just dropped it into the jungle. Probably not <laughs> going to work out too well for that. Yeah, point that's tiger, not going right? to work out well. <laughs> so if you want to perform, you have to spend the time in the jungle. and you probably want it to be, if anything, uh, a more challenging jungle because the worst that's going to happen is that your ego is going to get shot. It's not like you're not going to eat, right? So it's, um, it's really, it's a challenge to see how can we make our performance environments more stressful. And that's something that I always ask coaches, like, how do you create that stressful environment? What do you do to actually create pressure? Because in my experience, uh, it's a really, really difficult thing to do. So what I end up telling my players is, listen, if you want to get better at playing tournaments, you got to play tournaments. Yeah. That's it. You got to treat the tournament as a practice, like practicing to get better at playing tournaments. It's almost a completely separate skill to where if you're not playing in tournaments, you're not going to get better at playing tournaments. Yeah. You might get better at playing, but it's not going to retain and transfer to that tournament environment if you're not actually in that environment. So, so you're kind of really looking at it from, from a perspective of, I'm going to replicate the environment in practice so that I feel more at ease, let's say, for want of a better term, when that environment takes place, rather than you could look at a a flip way and go, okay, well, well, I'm going to practice being a calm and peace in this beautiful Mm -hmm. space, but 
yeah. how much does the environment affect the state? So we can kind of go down those those roads. But I like the tiger analogy because that kind of blows my argument out of the water. So that's <laughs> yeah, oh. and I think I think the more you understand that the the emotions play such a huge factor in it is like you've heard the term perception action coupling right so yeah. it's basically your the action that you take is dependent on the information that you perceive in the environment right uh well i think some of that information is your state so how are you feeling what is your what is your mental environment i think is just as important if not more important than the physical environment so again if if the, if we're only perceiving the environment and we're acting based off of those perceptions, then uh, the motor programs that we use have to be tied into that uh, into that environment. So, yeah, yeah if you if you come up with a way to uh, make to simulate the pressure of tournament golf without actually being in a tournament, let me know. But yeah. uh, it's, it's really difficult. I think we're still working on it. To, to rob a Tony Robbins one, it's the reason why it's called emotion because there's like that's the the environment creates the uh, the motion of it or the yeah the feeling so if if, so we're, if we're kind of looking at it in a different way we said okay well i went for a lesson today and in this lesson the coach that i was with told me in a very very good great way that i needed to create more lead risk flexion earlier in my takeaway okay that was, <laughs> you know, i will just pick one out here how do yeah. i practice that tomorrow on the range so if one of our listeners has got something very very specific be that rightly or wrongly, whichever way, how do they go about practicing that? And we'll try and, well, you can actually implement the internal, external things if you wanted to, but I think mm -hmm. that's where they, a lot of the club golfers will struggle where they get something specific, like could be like, you know, okay, I'm going to try and shallow it, or I'm going to try and be more open to the impact. Any one of those things that are very much positional based, their feedback mm -hmm. is that, and then they go to the range tomorrow and then they go, all right, 50 golf balls, let's go such a great question isn't it i mean because that's really what we're doing right we're prescribing improved movement uh and then we're sending people off into the jungle right having been in the zoo right yeah. um so it, it it's really how do we best bridge that gap so i would say first and foremost is kind of to your point and we'll touch on this a little bit is that if you can turn it into an external task to where you're not actually thinking about something that's happening in the body I think uh, that is always going to be preferable for performance. And that's important to make that distinction is that you can actually, uh, you can have an internal cue and I could even make the argument that you could perform that movement uh, maybe with the same accuracy. I don't know, but it's almost certainly not going to allow for the whole environment perception action coupling thing to happen. Yeah. So the, the question is then why would you ever use an internal cue in the first place, right? Why don't we always, why don't we create uh, the task, i.e. the flexion uh, in the environment in which you wanted to transfer and then allow them to explore in that, in that context. So I think uh, if I didn't start there, I'd probably do the, uh, the question to service. But I mean, I just think feedback however you can uh, agree with feedback between you and your coach. Um, I think for certain things, you can use the strike, you can use the ball flight, you can use the ground contact, maybe distance as a form of feedback. So like if you have a speed radar, and if you're working with your coach on something that's going to create more speed, sure, the, the speed radar is going to be a fine form of feedback. 
the problem is that it's just so complex to be able to directly attribute one movement with a ball flight change. Yeah. Because I can tell you, like, you know, you're, I can see a smiling on the other side there, is that there are plenty of times where a student does the movement that we want them to do, and it doesn't directly correlate with the ball flight that they want. And they're like, man, I must not have done it at all. And we're like, no, no, actually, you, you did it pretty well. It's just there's a whole bunch of other stuff that happened between that movement and an impact that made the ball go in the direction you didn't want it to go. So that's why I think, and I love what, uh, what John Donegan said to me at the MAPGA Summit the other day, is like, whatever it is you want them to do movement-wise in your golf swing, you have to make sure that they're connecting that to how they want the club to move differently or how they want, how that's going to impact the ball flight. So if, if you have a student working on lead reflection, then they need to understand, in my opinion, that you're doing that in an effort to close the face mm-hmm. in an effort to change where the ball is starting or if it's curving. And if so, how much, right? So in that way, uh, if you, if you put it into that context, the player understands listen, I'm trying to arrive at impact with my face closed to the path. And we're using that by rotating the grip kind of about the shaft. So my coach wants me to be uh, in flexion, but I'm not seeing that. Well, then that in, in, a, in many ways kind of gives the golfer that freedom to explore the other options to rotate the grip to make the ball do what they wanted to do in the first place. Mm-hmm. I think if the golfer can understand why the coach would make a suggestion and again i think it's important that players don't get too far in the weeds as far as like the biomechanical reasons and all that thing like like they just need an understanding of what the club is going to do particularly at impact and why that movement would have an effect on that and i think if you can start with with that just simply hey you know and sometimes i give them the task before telling them how to do it i say listen your uh your face is eight or nine degrees open to the path. And what do you think, uh, what do you think that means? And I'll just ask them to what, you know, you see this number, what what do you think that means to you? So if we can get on the same page, as far as, hey, we need the the face to close kind of about the shaft, I say, great. So can you do that movement so much that you actually hit a shot that goes left of the target or that, that actually curves left? So you're, again, you're giving them the kind of these external tasks uh, but having them connect the movement that you're trying to do to that. So I think that's, that's super important. I mean, I, sometimes I hesitate to tell golfers to take their own video because sometimes the, you know, the camera angles and, and all that kind of stuff can get uh, kind of wonky. But um, yeah, I think some of that's okay. And, and I really like certain things like, you know, just putting stuff in the way that if you can coach the, the players to, hey, this is your station, this is how you set it up. Uh, if you're moving the way that we want you to move, you're going to avoid this thing on the way down, or you're going to hit this mm-hmm. thing on the way through, then they can kind of set up that same environment that you had for them uh, in the lesson, and, and they can kind of use their feedback that way. So I hope that answers the question. But. Yeah, no, it, it, like, I definitely think like when we're, we're, we're kind of centering around communication an awful lot and understanding, um, I, I think feedback is huge, personally, because um, mm-hmm. I, I even had it this morning where I was working with a player and you know, they did, exa- they did exactly what I wanted them to do in terms of what they were trying and what we were working on. And the ball went way right. And they're shaking their head going, oh, that was awful. And I'm like, no, mm-hmm. no, that was really good. 
just other dominoes have to fall a little bit and you got to give it a bit of time for right. that to happen. So I think a player, when they go off on their own, a lot of the times they will, you know, their only feedback in terms of that. And that's why I like indoor coaching to an extent is their only feedback is sometimes the golf ball and the impact. Mm-hmm. That's not always reliable, but I, I liked right. what you did there where you went, okay, well, let's go with ball flight first. Cause that's obviously the end of the day. What, we're, what we're trying to do is you're right. Yeah. So, so you can get that feedback if you, illustrate it enough where you go okay well when you do this this ball flight might be a little bit lower a little bit left but that might be an actual a good indicator of what we're doing is actually working absolutely yeah and that's why i think uh in general i try to develop skill before going down the technical rabbit hole Mm -hmm. because (laughs) invariably like you know you can't change just one thing yeah, I love what the Dr. Bull does when he pulls on the on the shirt and yeah. all the other fibers of the shirt start to move. You know, you can't just change one thing. So in my opinion, if the golfer can kind of own their strike location, if they can own their ball flight, if they have the tools available to them to make those adjustments, then if we're working on something uh, movement-wise and they happen to hit a few off the toe, now we're not saying, okay, well, what do I have to do now from a movement standpoint to solve that toe strike? They say, Oh, I'm going to make the same movement and I'm just going to try to hit a little bit more towards the heel because they've practiced that. They already have those uh, skills in there to where you're not having to go back every time to try to give them a, a technical explanation for, for what they're doing. That's, that's what I've had the most success with Steve is just starting with understanding exactly how the club should move or how you're trying to make it move. Uh, and then giving them, the understanding of this is how you change the strike. This is how you change the ball flight. If you can manipulate the ball in these different areas, now we can work on some of the movement stuff without us both uh, chasing our tails, always wondering, well, when I do this technique, why does the ball go that mm-hmm. way, right? So hopefully- that I, I think definitely given, given players, I think it's a really cool thing to give players some ownership of the process really early on. And if you can, you know, if they, if they kind of find the answer, so to speak, themselves in terms of the movement and you just giving them the task, mm-hmm. obviously, you know, that's probably going to last a little bit longer in terms of a learning right. experience rather than, you know, oh, well, Steve or Robbie told me to do this, this, and this. And when I get all these things right, it's great. Well, no, if you learn it yourself, it's a, it's a little bit easier. You're right. Um, and, and I'll be honest with you, some of the best, some of the best lessons I've had, just thinking back on it, have been situations where we delve into technique because of their inability to perform a skill. So let's say that you give them, and I actually am a fan of this, by the way, the nine ball flight drill, right? So yeah. uh, high hook, high straight, high fade, then you go medium and low, trying to create all nine of those ball flights. Even though obviously when we're playing, we're not going to be uh, hopefully encouraging our golfers to, <laughs> that I teach at least to be working the ball all different which ways. But I think from a skill development standpoint, I think that task can be very, very important because really that's why we're delving down the movement sort of technique rabbit hole anyway, to allow them to be more skillful. Mm-hmm. So if they can't create a certain ball flight, then they ask the question, well, I'm trying to do this now with the club. Like I know what the club should do. I'm trying to do it. Why can't I? And that's when we can open their eyes and say, oh, well, if you're, uh, you know, let's say that your pelvis is, you know, not rotating enough in the backswing or whatever, and you can't get the path to the right. It's like, well, it could just be the geometry of where your body is. 
uh, and where you're coming from that doesn't allow you to get the path where it needs to be. So let's just play around with some of the things and then just see if that allows you to be more skillful. I think it's sometimes a great way to go about making uh, technical improvements. Yeah, again, like, you know, experimenting a little bit with the player and again, going back to just communication, communication, you know, involving them as much as possible. And it's mm -hmm. never going to be kind of like uh, you just dictating how they should move uh, really important. So, Absolutely. you know, we're, we're in a kind of a day and age now where there's, and I, I'd probably be guilty of this as well, of a lot of information out there, whether that be Instagram, TikTok, Facebook, YouTube. So there's this mm -hmm. tons of tons of information and more a lot of um, like club golfers are getting their hands on that information and starting to understand it with their own launch monitors and them buying hack motion, all these devices. Is there any particular area of that information that concerns you in terms of the narrative being portrayed out there or the information given in anything mm. in and around the golf swing area or even, you know, even in and around like the way we're actually performance wise, the way we're learning retention wise, anything in particular? Yeah, I think the, the only thing that I would say is just information void of context is, is really the, the big, uh, the big one that I see is like, I, there is nothing that I would never tell a golfer in terms of their intentions, what you're trying to do. Um, you know, I had the pleasure of watching uh, Mark Grace teach earlier today over FaceTime, and we literally had this kid trying not to move his legs in the downswing, just okay. not trying not to do it, like, like <laughs> Lieutenant Dan downswing, right? So, like, that's what, literally what we had him trying to do, and he was getting better. So, do we want the legs not moving in the downswing? Of course not. Like, everything I've learned from Dr. Kwan would say the other one, okay. say the opposite, right? But for him, it was what he needed to solve his issues. And I think, uh, yeah, you can, you can post anything you want from, from that standpoint. And for me, I'm, I'm good. As long as there's a context behind the golfer had this issues, this is why they're here, this is what they're trying to do. This is how we were trying to do it. You're good as far as I'm concerned. Yeah, no, that's a beautiful way of putting it actually in terms of the context. And I remember, I think last year at some stage, I was, I was scrolling through some some feed and I saw this picture of Bryson at a point uh, post impact and I was like, oh, that's cool. That shows how strong he is in that lead arm and I'll post that up. Oh. And I posted it up and I was like, that's you know, I got my likes or whatever. And mm -hmm. then finally DM me behind the scenes and was like, have you seen the whole of that picture or the sequence beforehand to give it context? And I was like, no. Mm -hmm. And then I went and looked at it and you were like, well, it's the ground is causing that club to move like yeah. that and causing that. And I was like shit yeah you're right but <laughs> number one obviously a much nicer way of doing it than a lot of people might have done so i appreciate that but definitely just to back up your point that every single thing we see should have context and i think justin parsons posted up something really cool yesterday where he's talking about somebody asked him on this q a on instagram about where should the club had always be in front of the hands at like p2 now i'm paraphrasing a little bit here so excuse me if i get it wrong but he was just saying well in some cases, but it depends on the pivot and then mm -hmm. the rate of the pivot, where the stage of the pivot and all this. So just again, backing up your point that I think everything has its its relevancy as long as there's context to associate with it. Um, there's no doubt. Yeah. So let, let's move on to some stuff from the coaches. Um, as mm -hmm. I said, I, I really do firmly believe this, that in, in, in many, in some years time, that you're going to be a household name. So in terms of what you've done in your... Well, likewise, I mean, you're doing you're doing all the right things. I mean, that's like, just to, just to think about where you were not saying that I was 
uh, at a higher level or anything, but like when oh, I, I would say, <laughs> like when we were at coach camp, right. From where you were at coach camp to now is like, Oh my gosh, like it's incredible. Right. So you deserve so much, uh, so much praise for what you've done and you've really inspired a lot of coaches. I know you've inspired me for sure in terms of just your, uh, your pursuit of, of better. Yeah, well, likewise, man, to be honest with you. So it's, it's everybody working towards the same thing. I, I remember like, you know, we were there and we were at coach camp and you were chatting to Grant Waite and, I, and then you were like, yeah, Grant, uh, you know, I'd like to get your number to like swap ideas. And I was like, why is he getting the number? Like, there's no... And then like <laughs> three years later, I'm like scrambling around to find Grant's number to ask him something. Yep. So it's, I, I think everything comes to us in the right time and the right space. And, and when, once you're in the right position to accelerate that, but I think there's a lot of really great coaches doing some great things and you know there's so much learning going on between like better be you know mark bull is so so helpful mm-hmm. to us all and um, chris como all these guys jason sutton um your, your ex-boss is so great so you know i've seen you kind of previously discuss how much you enjoy that learning experience that we just talked about and, and and learning from all these great coaches individuals i want you to chat a little bit about that influence but i also want you to chat a little bit about how you create those um opportunities because I know mm. that, you know, there are certain people that would have come down when you were, when you were working with Jason. And, and so you would have had that kind of access to them, but a lot of the other opportunities you'd have to travel to, you'd have to get on the phone with people. So could you talk about obviously the influences, but then how you created them too, I think is really important. Yeah, no, absolutely. I mean, I think in, in all the coaches that have helped me, I think uh, it's just started with, you know, just showing a, a genuine interest in in learning from that person right and so like some of the best friends that i have now are coaches i mean we talk about you know mark grace sean kennedy uh billy you know us just hanging out at the at the vrbo place and just like having that experience over the weekend i mean not only does that leave with just some incredible knowledge to take home to our players but also just a, a friendships that last forever yeah right so i think uh i would like to think uh hopefully that uh each and every coach that i have went and, and shadowed and, and i would call a mentor has also been a friend uh and i think that's just the more time you can spend with coaches who uh have you know i've even like gone and watched coaches that i completely disagree with coach and just just want to see like hey how do they go about their business they're successful for a reason yeah. there's got to be a reason right and so yeah I, I just think uh you know don't be afraid I think you have really honestly great advice there is just be persistent don't don't think that just the fact that they didn't respond to you right away or that day that if you don't reach out a few more times that they won't um, because I think there is a there's an absolute uh, culture in our industry of helping other people and I think that's what makes the industry so great yeah, it's, it's definitely changed around. And, you know, I've talked about this point before and I'll say it again, like there's, there's certain opportunities that I've been fortunate enough to, to have occur to me. Um, but they've been true persistence and perseverance of, to the point of this person's probably going to block me and never. But again, <laughs> and there's been other ones where I've been looking up, one message has, has got it to turn around. Yeah. You know, these coaches, obviously there's a lot going on in their lives, especially the guys working on tour um so yeah you just have to be persistent and, and hopefully get that opportunity i think I, I think one thing that i've always found with you is is the respect that comes from anybody you talk to or talk about or 
I think that's really, really important um, because whether it be you, I know you've probably spent like me hours studying swings, like studying your own mm. stuff, learning as much as you can. And then if someone wants to come in and get your knowledge, that's absolutely fine. But there kind of has to be a little bit of respect there in terms of the, the effort and time that you've put in. And I think that's, that's, a, cool. that, that's a really, really important thing. Um, we did discuss some technical pieces already, but what are you kind of like, as we kind of go into this next kind of like AI, Sportsbox AI, we're talking about some mm-hmm. other stuff coming down the line. What are you kind of most excited about currently in the golf realm um, in terms of technology or just in terms of knowledge base and kind of like going down the rabbit hole a bit more on? Definitely. And I think, uh, I think a lot of the, the information that we already have, we, need, we still need to, to completely understand, right? So um, again, we've said Dr. Bull's name so many times, but it's so true. I mean, I think so many things he says is so accurate, but the, almost the last thing we need at this point is more information, right? We need to better understand what we already have. Uh, and that's where like, you know, just even recently, I mean, Hunter has opened my eyes to how little I actually knew about TrackMan. Right. It's just, it's been, it's been pretty incredible because he worked for track band. He, he traveled the country uh, and, and has a, a very deep understanding of that. And just being able to work with him day in and day out, I'm like, man, why am I looking at 3d graphs and, and dual force plates? If, if uh, I didn't, if I didn't understand this. Right. Yeah. So I think there's that, that aspect to it for sure. But I think the next track man, if you will, is going to be instrument and grip. I yeah. think if we can, if we can understand what, the forces each hand is putting into the club i think that's going to be a game changer and i'm i'm still really interested in the dual plates and in 3d don't get me wrong but uh, that's that's where i'm at right now yeah i think i think for me like i, I love the way you've just phrased that like first off the, the yeah into the grip and stuff is going to be cool hopefully it won't cost what was it a hundred thousand or something like that when i Joe think so he's trying to do it <laughs> so i know well, the, the original one was a million was it a million yeah, I know Dr. Yeah. Kwan, I think Kouks was saying that Dr. Kwan was over there last year or something. They're working on something. So okay. yep. yeah, yeah, we, we could see something soon. Um, but I love what you said there. I think because I fall into that trap a couple of times where I'm like, okay, what's new? What's, you know, kind of get this, you know, learn more, learn more. And mm-hmm. like, in all honesty, a couple of months ago, I went back and started looking at like flight scope track on that. And I'm like, get more into it and understand it more. And definitely same. I was like, oh, well, I didn't know that. I didn't know that. I didn't know that. And then you know, you're, you're learning more of the fundamentals rather than, you know, like learn to get to base camp one and two before you start thinking about what's going to be at the summit. Like it's, right. it's, it's very, very important. And, you know, as we did kind of mention Dr. Kwan there, who's been so influential, I think, for so many coaches in the last many years, uh, especially with, you mentioned Mark Grace there. So yourself and Mark are, are very much uh, proponents of Dr. Kwan's um, philosophy. Can you discuss your kind of journey through his teachings and, and kind of what you learned from Dr. Kwan and, you know, the beliefs that you had mm-hmm. be- before you started looking at that, um, were they kind of like confirmed or did anything kind of get replaced where you went, oh, that's not quite what I thought should have happened. Mm. All right. How much time we got? <laughs> <laughs> no, I mean, I think uh, I, I really do think that Kwan's level one and two probably should be fundamental for anyone looking to. Uh, I'll use the word aspire again, right? Okay. So if for those, because I do, I think some coaches are uh, acceptance coaches, right? And they're not to say there's anything wrong with it. No. Um, but I think for the aspiring coaches, I think uh, I think Dr. Kwan's level one and two should be fundamental because really in level one, you're talking a lot about 
just simply how the body functions, stretch shortening cycles, eccentric concentric movements, uh, eccentric concentric forces, right? Forces that create rotation, forces that create translation and understanding just concepts like couples and moment arms when it comes to vectors. <laughs> yeah, I mean, and it, like I said, and I think it, it can be overwhelming when you, and I think everyone's had this, everyone who's gone through school knows this, like if you open up the textbook on the first day of class and you read all the way through the textbook, you're like, this is completely overwhelming. There's no way I'm going to get all this. But when you go to Dr. Kwan, you spend two or three days with him and you allow him to do the presentation and you're just very open-minded about what he is, what he's presenting. I think when you look back on it, you're like, man, yeah, that, that really makes a lot of sense. Why some people can really jump higher uh, if they, uh, if they go down and, and make kind of a quicker counter move versus some of them kind of go into a little bit more of a deep squat and try to jump up. It's like, why, why is one more effective than the other? I think uh, a lot of the common principles are applicable for really any athletic movement. So I think so much to the level one is just understanding how we can utilize our bodies more efficiently um, and effectively uh, in an athletic movement, not even really golf specific. Mm -hmm. um, so I think that that has been very, very helpful. And I think, uh, piggybacking off of that, the way that I look at Dr. Kwan's info is how do I need to generally organize the, the energy and the momentum uh, so that the odds are in my favor that good things are going to happen. So a, a good way to think about it is that imagine a golfer and their arms were just dead weight, that they're just suspended from the shoulders. They can't form, they can't create any sort of muscular contractions one way or the other. They're just dead weight. Under Quan's paradigm, a golfer that didn't even have arms would be able to create a sufficient club head speed, a reasonably solid strike with a club face that points somewhere near the target. And I think like for so many golfers, that's what they need. They need to orchestrate the energy such that it can be functional more often than not. And I think if you understand the lens through which Dr. Kwan is, is presenting his info, it, it honestly leaves a lot more room for variations. Uh, even though like when you watch his site, like, yeah, he's doing the two-step drill with basically everybody, mm -hmm. but the, there's a reason why he's doing that is because the general rhythm doesn't really change from shot to shot, from golfer to golfer. There's absolutely uh, a fundamental rhythm that we need to create energy with. And I think if, if we get more of our golfers using that rhythm and that energy, uh, you're going to be helping so many more golfers than you're hurting. Uh, you're, and really, I've yet to see the Quan stuff do any harm. I mean, it's only been beneficial. And for some people, it's really unlocked like a level of performance that they didn't think was possible. Um, so I, I think, you know, when you, when you go through uh, doc, um, Scott Cox's uh, certifications, you're getting all these patterns. And it's mm -hmm. great because you're seeing all the variations that are possible. Yeah. But if you look under the hood, um, they're all creating the energy with the rhythm that would allow for uh, repeat. I hate to say the word repeatability, but functionality, right? Yeah. So I think that's, again, there's so many ways to, to play golf. <laughs> I think that that uh, that statement is kind of tired out, but it's so true. Uh, there are so many ways to do it. Uh, but 
you kind of have to create momentum. (laughs) You can't, you know, and that's, that's something that has really been opening, uh, that's been open to my eyes uh, since doing Dr. Kwan. Yeah, I think he's, um, I'm just going to go back tonight now and do do my level one again, (laughs) inspired. Um, But he definitely, he definitely illustrates an awful lot of things that I love the way you put it there where you were like, you know, if I get people to do these things, it increases their odds. So I can put the odds in yes. their favor, right? I think that's the a, odds are in their favor. I think that's a really, really important concept out of everything you said tonight. It's kind of like there's nothing that's guaranteed here in terms of we're not, you know, you know, clairvoyance where we can go, okay, well, when you do this, you know, mm-hmm. and move like this, it's definitely going to hit it better. You know, we're we're for a certain point guessing on experience and intelligence. Absolutely. And, you know, I think that's a really, really good way. So anything you're doing is trying to put the odds in the favor of the golfer to be able to move. And, you know, Absolutely. and then to, and then to um, answer your, sorry, to answer your second question, were yeah. there things that I believed going into the certifications that uh, didn't end up being accurate? I think his, his research on the X factor for me was very enlightening uh, because, you know, you hear growing up, like just uh, not, not going to call anyone out, but, yeah. You hear, you hear like, oh, you have to dissociate your, your upper body from your lower body, mm-hmm. right? And you want that to happen in the backswing and you want all like, and that's all fine and dandy, but really his, what his research, research shows that it's not really as much of an upper body to lower body disassociation, mm-hmm. disassociation type of thing. It's really mainly from the trunk uh, through kind of like the upper T-spine and the shoulders. So I really like what Dr. Bull says. It's really, it's above and below the diaphragm. So if you can, you can get people to understand that they're not trying to torque their lumbar spine. uh, I think that has been something that's been very helpful. And then also understanding uh, the difference between the early and the late separator. Um, I'm for the most part, again, there's a lot of ways to do it. And I would never say that I would always teach one thing, but I'm teaching pretty much most of my golfers um, late separator where they're getting pretty much you know not a whole lot of uh, disassociation in the early parts of the backswing so uh, once the pelvis hits EP uh, end of pelvis rotation and then kind of the, the upper thorax and the shoulders tend to kind of complete the backswing motion as the as the as the lower body starts to shift kind of that you know Mark Grace's Term, uh, term the uh, the shift tush turn right so I think understand, <laughs> understanding that the the turn overlapping with the shift is more of kind of from EPR to TB yeah. uh, and I'm not trying to from top of backswing TB I'm not trying to get the pelvis to go first and then the trunk second and the arms third uh, it's really you know the the lead arm the trunk are all kind of I'm not going to say going together, but you're going to have a little bit of adduction, but then the main separation is between basically the, the body and then the arms and club um, is I think a a much healthier way to think about it. And uh, when you look at what it does for the geometry as well, I mean, it, it, it creates, I think a lot of the nice looking kind of passive torque stuff that we like to see uh, when it comes to the club kinetics. Yeah, I, I think it's, um, oh, I agree with kind of all you said there and it's some really, really cool stuff. And even talking, I think, well, going into the X factor, it's it's got such a history 
you know, because it's been around for mm. so long and talked about it, that it's that memory of people that were like, you'd be 40 and up, you'd be thinking, okay, X factor is stretch of lower versus upper, and I got to coil that. And I love mm-hmm. when Mark is, uh, Mark Bull is talking about it, when he's like, well, you could, you could have as big an X factor as you want, but if you're going as, as fast as a snail, it doesn't really matter. So it's, it's more that's the so, of it is, is a little and bit. And that's actually that. what we found is that yeah. uh, when we went down and, and spent the day with him, uh, my kinematic sequence, like my transition sequence was one, two, three, four, five. Yeah. It was a perfect transition sequence, but the, the, the timings of the peaks were like 15 milliseconds, 30 milliseconds, 10 milliseconds, uh, and then like 60 milliseconds. So it was all like, it wasn't like that 30, 30, 30, 30, 30 type of, you know, yeah. that really elastic kind of stretch shortening cycle. Like boom, boom, so boom. it looked, yeah, no, it looked, it looked pretty i guess like if you look at the transition order it looked fine but the energy wasn't migrating through the system to actually get out to the hands in the club head yeah. so uh, my body wasn't uh wasn't creating the uh the eccentric to concentric kind of uh rate of recoil i guess you could say as fast as i needed for certain segments yeah uh so it's just like i said we need to better understand the information that we already have because that is the stuff in the kinematic sequence that I just glazed over the first time. I was like, oh yeah, look, look at my transition sequence. It's one, two, three, four. Look at my peak order sequence. It's, you know, one, three, two, four or, or whatever. But I never looked at the timing between the peaks yeah. and then the rate of the stretch and the rate of the recoil is just stuff that I just glazed over. And, and to be able to, to have that light sh- uh, shown on that piece of it, made me think man i need to go back and look through all of my stuff now and with that sort of lens is like what else am i missing <laughs> i i found that though like where I, i've done courses and certifications and then you know a year later i've like you know flying through mark bull stuff and you know I'm, okay and then i go back and look at the other thing and i have a different perspective altogether on the information totally. i take it in an awful lot differently i like actually put it into a different context and department and can use it in an awful lot better way i, I think you know, if we, we didn't really talk about learning retention, but I think that's a huge, huge aspect, especially mm-hmm. when certifications, people rush to get the, the thing and post it up at the end. And I'm like, you've paid for that information. Like, like be a trawler, like take your time, like yeah. deep sea dive on that stuff. And um, but talking about graphs and, and, and so forth, you know, and, and there's two people I've seen do this. And, and one was when you and Jason Sutton did um, some stuff for Hack Motion. He talked a little bit about it. And at TPI as well, they were like, we don't really, we're not really bothered about the numbers. We're, we just want to see the order and then how that moves and what, mm-hmm. when, when it happens. And I think that was really, really cool when Jason was doing it with Hack Motion. He was like, yeah, I'm not too obsessed with the numbers. You know, I was this or this. The position, right? More, the position. more the motion. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And that's, that's when, you know, you just pick up those little things and it changes the whole perspective for us as coaches on the movement yeah. and then it changes how you, how you think about it. Um, so obviously like a ton of stuff and you're firing through this and you're doing some great stuff with your students. As I said, I love, I love watching your Instagram because it's, it's, I would say abnormal, but that's, that might be con- contrived as a bit of a, a, you no. know, a bad yeah. way, but it, it's coming from a totally different perspective. And that's why I love it because when I see some of your stuff and some of the things you're talking about your students, whether it be the 10 finger grip, whether what you're doing with the club on the golf ball, I never see things that way. So it's, it's really good for me to learn. Mm. 
what's your kind of next or is there a conscious next to improve mm. even more or where do you take your kind of knowledge base now and go okay well i want a little bit of this or a little bit of that what's next on the kind of a horizon yeah i mean i think uh, i got to give credit to uh, john scott rattan he's the uh, director of instruction at uh, congressional he, he just put on a great mapga teaching summit and um we had John Dunnigan come and, and do a great awesome. presentation. And AD is awesome. we had, uh, yeah, he's the best. Um, and then, uh, and then we also had, uh, Nick Wink, Dr. Nick Winkleman. Uh, he doesn't want to be called doctor. He wants to be called coach, but I call him doctor out of respect, but he had a great, great presentation on the precision of language and the sequence of which we're cueing people. Okay. Um, and it just, it, again, it was one of those things that was very eye opening. It was like, man, I, I've got to be more careful, more precise with my language and how I'm cueing people. I, there was like, there was a step that I was like, just completely missing, you know? And I think it's just maybe being a bit more brief in my descriptions of what I want them to do, but being much more precise. Um, here, let me see if I can, if I can look up the actual. Yeah, yeah, take your time. I thought, I thought one, of the, one of the slides was actually super, super helpful. Um, and I'm sure you'd be fine because you can find the stuff on YouTube, but you've got basically the sequence in which you're, you're queuing players. You have a, you have a, what he's called, what he calls a long loop and then a short loop type of sequence. So uh, basically the, the first step would be to describe the movement. So when I'm talking about the why, what, how sequence, mm -hmm. that's the what behind what we're doing. Yeah. Just giving, giving you declarative knowledge of, of what's about to happen. Again, that could be, describing, okay, this is, this is the drill, this is what you're gonna do. Um, and then eventually you would demonstrate that, uh, that concept. So you would describe, you would demonstrate, and then you would cue, and then the, the, golfer, or the golfer would do it, and then you would debrief. So basically saying, how do you feel like you did? So on and so forth. So it's, it's uh, DDCDD, de describe, demonstrate, cue, do it, and debrief. So the step that I was missing was basically right before they do it, you have to cue it. And that really the cue has to be, or I shouldn't say has to be, but the research has shown is that uh, if you can keep it external and if you can kind of use the way that a sentence would normally be structured. So giving you an example here, you'd have a noun, a verb, and a preposition in the cue. So you'd say, I want to, I want you to push, hold on, let me look at this, drive the ground back as, as explosively as you can. So that would be drive the ground and then backward, giving a direction, and then as explosively as you can. Yeah. And there's, and that would, that would be like a close external cue. You also have, I mean, again, I would recommend the listeners look up um, Nick Winkleman and definitely, uh, uh, have some great stuff there, but you can have narrow internal, broad internal, you have hybrid cues, you have close external cues, and you have far external cues. So depending on the golfer and their skill level and what you're trying to get them to do, you could go anywhere on that spectrum, narrow internal to far external. But the cue is going to have a, a noun, a verb, and a preposition. So and you want that to happen kind of as close to the movement as you can. So you kind of capture their attention so that you have almost control of what they're trying to do when they're actually doing the movement. See, I was, 
I, I know I put way too much time in between the cue yeah. and when they actually do it. And I can see their, their wheels spinning over the ball. And it's almost like I've lost them. I've lost control of their intention mm-hmm. at that point. So it's, it's about, you know, and I also would make the mistake of describing it and demonstrating it and then just like not cueing at all and just saying it, see if you, I guess I would cue in a way, but, um, and I think, you know, all of this information is great. And I think you need to understand the context in which you can apply it to your coaching because I'm still trying to figure that out, how to, how to integrate this info, but I've already seen some really, really positive results. Uh, when I've done it uh, and it's just again it's just being more precise in the how you know it's there's not you know I, I'm always looking for better questions to ask golfers in terms of why are we here what is the purpose of us being here today mm-hmm. um, I'm all like we've talked about today I'm always looking more into what we're teaching and what we're trying to get our golfers to do but for me the next step is to get better at the how and I think using language more precisely is, is definitely going to be the next step. Yeah. I, d- I think if you're kind of like, I was talking about goals with a presentation I was doing the other day and I was like, well, goals need to be achievable. And you know, if, if your goal is to get better at the how that's an ongoing process, cause you're, you're never yeah. gonna be perfect with it. I, I think that's, it's a really, really cool. And, and with that, you know, when you kind of took that from, from uh, uh, Dr. Winkleman and you kind of went, okay, I'm going to now kind of try this in my lessons. Yeah. Where's is, where is the stage that you start trying it in the lessons and start bringing it into your coaching session? Could, like, would it be just for the coaches out there who are learning new things? Mm-hmm. Would something like that be a little bit easier to bring in at an earlier stage than say, right away? Well, I just got hack motion and I need to go and learn how that works for like a month. Right. I think any of the any of the motor learning stuff that you can learn, but that you can pick up is applicable right away. So like I know like John Dunnigan and uh, Dr. Will Wu and, and uh, they do a great uh, skill coaching Alliance uh, type of deal. So I think if someone can go through that, that stuff is, is absolutely applicable right away. Cause again, all we're trying to do is, is to train awareness of movement. Mm-hmm. So I think the, the motor learning stuff is again, like, as I look back in my teaching career, that's probably where I should have started is just the motor learning stuff. Like how do people learn? How do I get someone to do what I'm trying to get them to do? Yeah. Um, and I think that stuff is applicable right away. When it comes to the information, uh, Jason would call it more the IQ stuff uh, as opposed to the EQ. Um, I think you do need to be careful about that in mm-hmm. terms of how you, how you implement in that in your coaching right away. Uh, because I do think just like playing golf, we learn and we self-organize as coaches to be able to solve the problem in front of us as best we can. Mm -hmm. So it's almost like if you're playing, if you're especially been playing well, and then now you go and see a teacher who tells you something so radically different, it changes the way that you see the world. And you're like, I don't know if I can get my old intentions back again. So I think that you have to almost protect your coaching. Like we have our players protect their games. Like if that makes sense, like, Mm -hmm. I, I definitely do streamline my information sources. Like, like I said, like I, I will watch coaches that I wouldn't necessarily agree with, but when it comes to what I apply in my lessons, there's definitely things that I've found that work for me. And 
I, I never want to get away from the good stuff. I never want to get too far away from that, if that makes sense. Oh yeah, that's that makes perfect sense. There was I forget who said it. It's like it kind of reminded me of somebody there saying something to me very, very I think my Carl Morris, but I could be wrong, but saying the exact same thing. Like if you know the good stuff and you know it works for you, don't travel yeah. too far away from it because you know you could we could sit Robbie Fails down five years ago and put you in front of Mark Bull, Jeff Smith, Scott Kouse, and and 28 different other coaches, and then you'd learn all their stuff, and then like the matrix, you get it zapped into you, and then still <laughs> right. in, that, in that context, you know, I'd be like, that's the best thing ever, but anyway, <laughs> in that context, you're going to be more affable with some of that material and, and find a connection more with it and be able to then use it better in front of your students yeah. while you know, trying to implement something like that you're not au fait with or not comfortable teaching is going to be a very, 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 very challenging kind of subject and challenging way to do it. And I think just bettering yourself or sorry, improving yourself as a coach is, is very much a personalized thing too, as is, you know, okay. So, you know, in that, what what's kind of some advice then you would give? So some of these, and I like, you know, we always go, oh, what's some advice you give to someone starting out, but you know, let's, let's, let's talk about aspiring coaches. Um, what's some yes. kind of, what's some advice you would give to aspiring coaches right now who haven't really maybe perhaps gone deep diving into information as much as you would have had and been exposed to that learning process. And um, is there a kind of set piece of advice you would give them or maybe a kind of direction in terms of people mm-hmm. or persons or coaches that you would send them towards? Definitely. So um, I'm going to turn it back kind of to a, uh, again, a, like a coaching context, if I have a new golfer in front of me, I want them to understand the context okay. first before introducing anything, any sort of new intentions or ideas or anything like that. So uh, I'm a big fan of like when, that, when we're evaluating players, trying to get them in the environment uh, that they're hoping to improve uh, performance in. So if you've got someone who needs to improve their handicap, you want to watch, you want to watch them actually playing golf. Uh, to start off with, uh, because it's so common that when you ask golfers, "Hey, what do you think you need to do to improve?" Uh, and you actually watch them play, those two things don't really line up, right? So if you can watch the, the golfer in the context in which they're going to perform, I think that is always the number one thing. So uh, as much as you can, be a student of actually playing the game. That's something that. Again, as a as a failed player myself, uh, I wouldn't call it failed player, but uh, I had goals of like playing professionally, and they obviously didn't pan out. I think I I should have spent so much more time just learning how to play. Like some of the Scott Fawcett stuff, like the the game theory type stuff, is just I just can't believe that that didn't come across my screen of consciousness when I was playing. Yeah. because of how how important some of that stuff is so learn how the game is played first learn how all the different you know how do i manipulate the tool to hit the shots that i need to be able to hit first uh and like for a lot of their beginners it's watching them go out and we have a we're blessed to have a par three course at, at birdwood so i'll throw them out operation 36 style i'll throw them out 25 yards away from the hole and say okay i'm going to you know, this is a task, right? You're going to use this tool to get the ball from here to there in as few tries as possible. See how you do it. Yeah. And and as soon as I start watching them play, I can already see the questions start to come into their heads. Like, man, the ball's not going up in the air. Why isn't that happening? And then we can say, well, what, what would, 
what do you think would make the ball go up? And there, a lot of the golfers are going to have answers like, oh, I got to, you know, lift it or, or do something like that. And then it kind of lays the context for it. No, this is, uh, this tool has loft. If the ball touches anywhere on the loft of the club, it's going to have an upward launch angle. So can you then try to uh, use your swing to collect the ball on the loft as opposed to trying to use the path to move the, to keep, to get the ball up in the air? So like just stuff like that, right? It's like starting them out on the golf course, even as a coach, like starting just by learning uh, how the tool works and how to how to, to navigate the golf course is where I would start for sure. I think I would then go into the motor learning stuff in terms of how to get someone to not only uh, control their movement, but also to learn the movement and apply that under different uh, environments and over a period of time. Mm. And that's where I would go next. Um, and then if you've got a solid understanding of the game, the tool and how the brain works, good luck messing it up. <laughs> I, would, I would then, I would only then go like, where I went first, right? Like the, the geek side of it, like looking at force yeah. vectors and 3D and all that kind of stuff. Uh, I would not trade it for the world, but man, I wish I would have spent more time on the other stuff uh, a little bit yeah. more first. I think even when you talk to Scott, he's like, oh, I wish I would have spent more time. On it. <laughs> he's, the one, he's the one that came up with the stuff at the end. Right. But would, would you have a look at like, um, like the physical kind of side of things in terms of, you know, movement? Mm. yeah. So like kind of like Mark Bull kind of maybe... TPI or Gray Institute, one of those kind of things too, just to give you. I think that fits. I think that fits in into the motor learning type okay. of stuff. I think uh, if you can understand again, like so, understand how the tool works uh, when it comes to the club, mm -hmm. and then understand how the body, the tool that you're using to move the club works, yeah. and that includes the brain. So the brain and the body is where I would kind of to go after that. But um, yeah, for sure, I think. I mean, there's just certain movements like you, I'm sure you've learned that they just aren't healthy for the human. Mm -hmm. um, you know, a whole bunch of excessive trail wrist extension early stuff. I used to, like, if I saw someone with an open club face at impact, I would absolutely, you know, have them hinge the right wrist back early saying, oh, look how this is going to close the face. And then uh, I never actually did have a player get injured, but um, knowing now, that there's so many more healthy, better ways to, to resolve that problem. That just, that takes that strategy a little bit more out of play for me. So I think the more you, you learn, I think is more learning what not to teach as opposed to what to teach. Yeah. Uh, and I think that's, that's really uh, a, a good benefit to some of the science that's come out. Yeah, I think, I think they're all really, really good avenues and kind of, I would have been up to this point kind of strict on myself in terms of, oh, if I'm learning something, I got to get it right. And you know what, Who like whatever coach you are out there, if you're opening a book or you're flipping onto YouTube in an effort and aspiration to learn more, the fact that you're doing that in the first place is going to be a benefit to your student. The fact that you're Without doubt. your eyes and awareness to more information is going to help you. So um, I encourage every single coach to do stuff like that. I think it's, uh, but from my experience, Dr. Kwan, Mark Bull, Scott Cokes, like these guys are creating such great information you mentioned the Skill Coaching Alliance, which I've done with JD and, and Dr. Will Wu. It's fantastic too. So the information's out there. You just kind of need to kind of wade your way through the weeds a little bit to get it right. Listen, Robbie, thank you so, so much for your time, mate. Um, if anybody's looking to get you, um, I think it's Rob at Rob Fails is on the Instagram. 
Um, Rob Fails Golf. Yep. Rob Fails Golf. Sorry, my bad. My bad. No, you're um, good. <laughs> and do you kind of do online stuff? If anybody's kind of looking to reach out from you from from uh, like locations other than in your area. So that is something that I haven't really delved into much yet. We get pretty busy over the summer, but the great play, the great thing about where I'm at now is that I can teach the public. So uh, it, come and uh, stay with us at Boar's Head Resort and come visit us at the Golf Academy and we'll take care of you. Yeah, we'll, we'll, we'll drop the, uh, the website address for that resort because I tell you, anybody who's listening, Look up the website address because this place looks absolutely beautiful. Rob, Robbie's awesome. landed on his feet there. He, he's, but you know, <laughs> all honesty, um, you know, a great win in the college playoffs last year. Everything's going well, looking good. <laughs> thank you, thank you so so much, man. It's um, I can honestly say it's it's been hundred percent and my privilege to know you over the last three or four years. Oh, you likewise. Inspired me to get better, to improve, to just achieve a higher standard for my for my students to have the understanding. Mm-hmm. Um, so anytime you're doing that, I, I think it's a really, really good place to be in. So thank you so much. Please keep doing it for all of us. And uh, we'll, we'll definitely talk to you again soon. Absolutely. We'll, we'll stay in touch. Thanks so much for having me, Steve. All right, Robbie. Cheers, mate. Thank you. Take care. Cheers. All right, folks. So that wraps up another episode. And thank you so much to Robbie Fails for coming on the show. I find it so interesting to get inside the mind of other coaches and listen to their perspective on what helps their players and indeed how they help their players. As I mentioned before, and what was referred to often in this podcast is that Robbie is a coach that is always aspiring to improve and refine his craft. And if we have more and more coaches like him, then I'm fairly confident the future of golf coaching is on the right path. Big thank you as always to you guys out there as without you listening and downloading these podcasts, it wouldn't really keep moving forward with such regularity. And I wouldn't be as inspired to provide the information that these great coaches give you. I really appreciate the support you all give it, whether that be likes or downloads. And if you do enjoy it, please make sure to rate the show on either Apple Podcasts or Spotify. As always, if you want to work with myself or have any questions on golf or indeed the podcast, you can contact me on Instagram at stevemoregolf or through the website www.smgolf.info. And finally, for your own game, don't forget, work hard, work diligently, but most importantly, work smart. I'm going to talk to you again soon. Cheers.